0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 358th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a British-born American who has been one of the stage and screen's greatest character actors of the last 40 years. With Tony, Critics' Choice, and three National Society of Film Critics Award nominations to his name, and a very real shot of adding to that list a Best Actor Oscar nomination, and maybe even a win... Over the next few months for his career best performance as a MAGA hat wearing PTSD afflicted Vietnam vet who returns to that country's jungles with three former comrades decades after the tragic death of their fifth blood in Spike Lee's Netflix film The Five Bloods, Delroy Lindo. Over the course of our conversation, the 67-year-old and I discussed his path to acting and how his screen career was built upon the three films in four years that he made with Spike Lee in the early 90s, 1992's Malcolm X, 1994's Crooklyn, and 1995's Clockers. Why he believes that the handful of larger-scale projects that he subsequently landed, among them 1995's Get Shorty, 1996's Ransom, and 2000's Gone in 60 Seconds, failed to lead to greater career advancement, why in his 50s he decided to go back to school, earning bachelor and graduate degrees before returning to prominence in his 60s on CBS All Access's drama series The Good Fight, what he made of the outreach from Lee 25 years after they last worked together, asking him to be part of The Five Bloods, And of the tremendous reaction to the film generally and his performance specifically, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation.
1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and AM member FDIC.
0: Thank you so much for doing this. It's great to have you on the podcast. And, Thank uh, you. And we always begin with just a few basics for our listeners. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? <laughs> <laughs> I was born in England.
1: I was born in London. My family is Jamaican. My mom was a nurse and was part of the influx of uh, Caribbean people from the Caribbean to England in the late 40s, 50s, and 60s. I have no idea what my father did, bless his heart, (laughs) (laughs) aside from be himself. And that's that's a whole (laughs) other conversation.
0: (laughs) Sure. Now, I believe that even before you ended up relocating to the U.S., you had your first dabble, I guess we could say, with acting. Can you share what your, what your earliest memory was of acting?
1: They, they warned me that you do a lot of research. So um, <laughs> you're going to be pulling shit from... Uh... All right. So, um, yeah, I was in the nativity play. That's probably the story you're referring to in elementary school. And and yes, that was my first dabbling with acting. Um, and I, I, played one of the Kings in the, um, uh, nativity play. And what's, uh, was critical about that experience for me was not so much the ego enhancing aspect, but it was, it had to do with how I was affirmed as a, as, as a young person, as a human being. And I think that is ultimately what led to what ignited the spark that resulted in, oh, I want to be an actor when I grow up.
0: Now, when you talk about being a firm, sometimes, you know, a lot of actors are one of many children, for instance, and it's a way to get attention. Did you have a lot of siblings?
1: No, not at all. The reverse. I'm an only child. But <laughs> in my case, I went to um, I went to all white schools. I was literally. In my elementary school, I was literally the only fly in the buttermilk, as we say. I was, I was, the, only, <laughs> I was the only black uh, student, like literally. And so I think that that is the aspect. And I've come to understand, I did not know this at the time at all, but it happens that at the time, uh, which would be, you know, the late 1950s, UK culture was going through a huge trans, a very huge and significant transition in terms of the um, accepting or not of thousands of Caribbean people coming into the country. And so I think that I have come to understand as a result of that, many of the things that happened to me, many of the unfortunate things that happened to me as a young black kid going to all-white schools, it's given me a much sharper context for some of the things that happened to me. But my point is that to the extent that I was beset with certain kinds of racially tinged episodes in my young life, here I was being affirmed in a certain way that in turn gave me a much stronger sense of myself. Now, not that I was assessing all of that in those terms at five and six years old, but in (laughs) retrospect, that is absolutely what I believe um, was happening. And I think that that directly led to the spark, that affirmation uh, of self um, ignited that spark that resulted in my desire to want to become an actor.
0: So interesting. And so I would imagine, based on what it seems, you know, your experience was in those early, early years in, in, in the, uh, the UK, that you were maybe not terribly unhappy when your mother decided to relocate to North America. <laughs> not that it was probably not that it was necessarily much better there, but I, I guess let me ask you that. So were you happy and was it any better?
1: Well, ironically, I actually resisted leaving England as a young person. I resisted. I will never forget that um, I remember the very first, I'm not sure how old I was. I was a relatively young person. But I remember the very first time that I saw a map of the world and I saw how small, not only England, but the UK, it's tiny. (laughs) And I was stunned how how could this be? How could this be that all of the various elements that had contributed to my evolution, my existence as a, as as a human being on the planet, and I was in that moment realizing that in actuality, England England is this tiny tiny. <laughs> And I'm looking at this map and I'm thinking, huh, this, this doesn't make sense. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I resisted. But coming to my senses, and I've thought about this relatively recently, it is one of the most profound, if not the most profound, gifts, contributions to my life that my mom could ever have made to me and for me. And, in, and it really is very profound because I cannot imagine what my life would have been. It's actually scary <laughs> to imagine <laughs> what my life would have been had I not been provided with the um, opportunity to leave um, that, my mom, that my mom afforded me.
0: And how old were you when you left? And I know it wasn't immediately to the U.S. I guess it was via Canada. Canada.
1: Yeah, it was it was via Canada. My mom ended up in Toronto. Well, I was a a teenager when I first left. However, um, there was some back and forth. I never um, actually ended up in the United States permanently until my early 20s. But what I said still holds. I mean, the fact that my mom was the conduit, you know, provided that opportunity for me to leave is, is really profound, you know. And as I get older and, and I'm a parent myself now, and I, as do we all, we all appreciate our parents much more as we yes. get older. <laughs> <laughs> my mom was a, was an extraordinary, uh, woman on, on a human being on many, 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 many levels, but I am—I have for many years been uh, deeply aware of the sacrifice that my mom made and the, frankly, the vision that my mom exercised in understanding uh, that she needed to make a better life for herself outside of the United Kingdom and then for me. Likewise, outside of the United Kingdom,
0: I guess the uh, r- roughly the years when you arrived in North America, whether it was Canada or the U.S., as you say, there was a little back and forth, would have been pretty close to the thick of the civil rights movement here, right?
1: Yeah, I I, I actually miss that in in okay. in terms of direct experiences, however as with the rest of the world, I was aware of it, and it, 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 and it indeed impacted me. It, it, I would say that it impacted me indirectly in as much as not they, they were not experiences that I was directly involved with. However, it impacted my reading, the literature, the literature that I sought out and exposed myself to And therefore, that started the process of (laughs) my education, um, socially, politically, just just as a human being on the planet. My own perception of who I am on the planet as an African descended person, all of those things were directly impacted by virtue of the literature that I sought out and uh, exposed myself to. And frankly, that process
0: continues.
1: Yeah, that, is well, a, I, uh, that is an ongoing process.
0: Well, eventually, I know you wind up in San Francisco going to the American Conservatory Theater, which I think, again, just my chronology, it's hard to pinpoint exactly, but I think this may be around the time that a, another past guests of this podcast who people will know Denzel Washington, I think was there around the same time. I don't know if you knew each other or overlapped or anything like that. We did. Um, Denzel
1: was there. Denzel was there the first year we were there together in our first year at, at, at ACT and um, Denzel left after the first year. He probably told you that. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Again, looking at these things in retrospect, Denzel was already on his trajectory. I remember, so Denzel left after the first year. I stayed for two years. I stayed for an additional year. And um, I remember Denzel called me probably, uh, I don't know, a a few months after he had left. So I'm, I'm now in my second year at ACT. Denzel has left. And he called me and he was doing the Wilma Rudolph story, a, a television film. So he was already, he began working very soon after he left ACT. But I also remember him telling me uh, a story about, about either having met or worked with John, or being about to work with John Cassavetes. So my point is, yes, we were there together the first year, he then left, and very soon thereafter he started working. As an actor, right.
0: Now, the fact that you even applied to and enrolled at ACT suggests that something had happened beyond the nativity play when you were five. Uh, and I, I wonder. I mean, one of the things that I had come across, and I don't know if this is truly a, a turning point, but it seemed like you had seen something on PBS that. Amen. Yeah,
1: absolutely. That's completely accurate. I saw okay. an extraordinary on PBS. I saw an extraordinary production, <clears throat> a Commedia dell'arte interpretation of The Taming of the Shrew, and my mind was completely blown. I was watching this work on TV, and I, I remember saying to myself, whoever these people are, I want that. I want some of that. I want <laughs> I want that right there. Uh, and it was, it was ACT. It was the American Conservatory Theater. I then either the following week or very soon thereafter, after seeing that Commedia dell'arte um, interpretation, of, brilliant uh, interpretation of The Taming of the Shrew, I saw very soon thereafter, I saw um, a Peter, an actor named Peter Donat in a production on TV of Cyrano de Bergerac. And, um, you know, I was not familiar with that play at all. But again, it just enhanced this feeling that I wanted to be a part of that work. I wanted to expose myself to that work. I was really clear at that point that I needed training as an actor. And my assessment was whatever these people were about, I wanted to be involved.
0: And it's interesting that so both Taming the Shrew and Sereno, the fact that we're talking about presumably costume drama period pieces, this, these are, it's, it's interesting that that's what initially hooked you. And then so many of your, the things that you've actually done professionally have been more of the, of the time. I don't know how many period pieces, sorts of things you've done that I, and maybe I'm not aware of, but it's just interesting that that was what appealed to you.
1: Well, I've done very few um, period Costume drama type things. In actuality, in the theater, I started in the theater, and I worked as a theater actor for ten years. Essentially, before I started doing film, in in, in I was a New York City based theater actor, and on some level, that's still how I consider myself, frankly. Um, yeah. But um, again, in retrospect, it had nothing to do with the costumes. It had nothing to do with the period aspects of that work and everything to do with the content of the work, the efficacy Mm -hmm. of the work, the, um, the ability of the work to speak to me as an audience and by extension audiences in general, that was the point. And that continues to be
0: the point, right? Absolutely. In, in, in
1: any work that one does.
0: So you mentioned those early years as a theater actor, and I guess the the first real film credit after graduating was in 79. That was more American graffiti, but then it was like 10, 11 years before the next one, and those were the years that you were, I know, primarily doing theater. And I just want to note for listeners, Broadway debut as a replacement in Master Harold and the Boys in 1982. I think that's with James Earl Jones, which must have been a very big deal for- a young actor, and then a Tony nomination just a few years later on Broadway for Joe Turner's Come and Gone in 88. What I what I want to ask you is, were you, you know, I guess it's all about the perspective, because on the one hand, that sounds like you're, on paper, looks like you're flourishing in the theater. But were you content or were you somebody who was disappointed? There weren't more film cre- credits at that you know, over those years, or just how were you regarding those years leading up to the early nineties when uh, I'll pick up from there?
1: All right. So first of all, yes, it was a, you know, a kick, as you say, uh, working with James Earl, uh, James Earl Jones in, in Master Harold and the Boys. However, my debut on Broadway in Master Harold and the Boys was even more special Um, for me, for the following reason. I was understudying. Um, I was hired in 1982 as an understudy on that Broadway production. And it was, at the time, it was James Earl Jones had just come into that production to replace an actor named Zakes Mokai. And Zakes Mokai was a South African actor who's no longer with us, but who had won the Tony Award for his work in Master Harold and the Boys. I was an understudy. I was hired to understudy. So it was James Earl Jones who was just um, taking over, who had just taken over for Zakes, and it was Danny Glover playing Willie. And James Earl had to go out to Los Angeles to do some voice work or something for Darth Vader. (laughs) So he was going to miss a performance. So I got a call as the understudy. I got a call saying, James is missing this performance. So you will go on tonight. And not only was it special that I was making my Broadway debut, but it was really special to me that I got to work with my good friend, Danny. And I will never forget so my my debut on Broadway was 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 filling in for James Earl as Sam. And Danny was playing the part of Willie. Now mm-hmm. I remember being backstage that night, getting ready, my my debut, my Broadway yes. debut, and the <laughs> announcement was made at this evening's performance. <laughs> I see where this is going. You know what's happening. You know it right. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> right, exactly <no. laughs> At this evening's performance The part of Sam <laughs> will be
0: played Well, it, it could only get better from there, right? It does get better <laughs> Stay with me, right? Stick with
1: yeah. me here uh, The part of Sam Will be played by Delroy Lindo uh, The groan, right? From the audience <laughs> But that actually didn't deter me. I, I don't remember. I, I may have been momentarily disappointed. But, you know, nothing can really... Um, when one is making one one's Broadway debut, that's what's important. I had friends yeah. in the audience. I had invited a lot of friends down when I knew what was going on. And the fact that Danny and I were playing together, that was what was special. And mm-hmm. I remember fairly early on... In the, um, in the play, I have to, Sam has to, I had to as Sam pick up some utensils and take them from the bar to the table, which was center stage. We were setting the table for, for Master Harold to come in and we were going to serve him his food. And my business was to pick up these utensils from the bar and take them and place them on the table. And I picked them up. And I dropped, in, in, in going from the bar to the table, I dropped one of the, the, the knives or the forks. I dropped something. And I very calmly, but I very calmly stopped, picked it up, went back, cleaned it off. And um, I think I may have replaced it and went and continued to set the table. And when that happened, I knew I was all right. Yes. there was no nervousness there was no excessive nervousness that befuddled me I simply did, I was in the moment I did what I needed to do in the life of the play and that was um, I know I was fine we went on, we did the performance it was wonderful all my friends were very supportive but about and it was terrific maybe the following evening or maybe a a day or two later. And this was back in the days when, one, when one's um, telephone was listed. Yes. One didn't have an unlisted number back then. <laughs> On my answering machine, and many of, the, of your listeners will not know what an answering machine is, probably. <laughs> On my answering machine in my apartment in New York, I got home from the theater and there was a message from a gentleman in Memphis. He had looked up my number and he called and left me a message, and the message said something like, uh, Mr. Lindo, my name is, and he said his name, I live in Memphis. I was in New York a couple of nights ago, and I came to see you in Master Harold and the Boys. I was indeed very disappointed when I heard that James Earl Jones was not going to be performing, but you were phenomenal. And I'm really glad that I saw you.
0: Oh, that's great. That's, that's great.
1: Absolutely. One, as a young actor, uh, one can't ask for more than that. So I don't remember what your original question
0: was. (laughs) Well, no, that's a great story and I appreciate it. And obviously, you know, from there, you began getting theater work, including on Broadway in your own right, and and wind up before the end of the decade with that Tony nomination for Joe Turner. And that's, that's all uh, amazing. But again, I, I guess I'm curious for you coming out of ACT and for those years pre 90s, were you hoping to be a, a screen actor as well, or were you? Yes, content?
1: that was your question. I remember, um, along around 1985, 86, I became aware that to the extent that I was working in the th- in the theater fairly consistently, obviously not making a lot of money. I mean, you mentioned the Broadway work, but in between mm-hmm. the Broadway work was a lot of regional theater work. Mm-hmm. You know, being in New York as a New York-based theater actor, and a lot of the regional theaters would come to New York to audition actors. And so I would, I would audition and I would get cast. So I would go to, you know, Norfolk, Virginia. I would go to Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park and I would work. As an actor, and I was working fairly consistently, but I, around the the middle of the the 1980s, I became aware that there needed to be more in my career. I needed to I needed to somehow uh, start working for the screen, TV and film, because, and the way that I was assessing it at that time was, a I needed to make more money, but also I, I became aware that. New York-based actors, theater actors, had the respect. Um, If you were a New York, if you were working New York theater actor, one was respected. But invariably, when films, when the larger films or significant TV productions would come to New York, all of the "quote-unquote" big parts had already been cast, and the New York theater actors would get these, you know, day player parts one, two days. And I was, vi- I was keenly aware of that. And I said, uh, uh-uh, I'm, I'm better than this. <laughs> um, right. and I didn't know how I was going to change that. But to your question, it was around the mid 1980s that I, that I had this sense something needed to change. If I was going to broaden my career and have, a, and have any kind of a career as a significant screen actor.
0: Right. Well, the beginning of your career as a significant screen actor, I guess, really was this initial trilogy of films that you made with Spike Lee in the early 90s. And so it all kind of comes full circle now. But I realized that it it could have been actually a quartet, maybe, of films. Or, on the other hand, none of these films might have happened if he had held Uh, a grudge about the fact that he approached you about do the right thing just to audition for it and you apparently were not very interested can you share what what that was about I
1: can it was very simply because I I, I think I had already done Joe Turner on Broadway and I had I had been nominated so I had started to do a little bit of film work Mm -hmm. and um the part that Spike, now it's important to understand, Spike did not offer me the part. I was asked to go on right. audition. Mm-hmm. And when I read the scenes, I don't think I was allowed to read the whole script. I, I can't remember. But I do remember looking at what we call the sides, the scenes yeah. um, from that um, the, involved one of these three men on the corner. Yeah, that were going to function as a kind of a Greek chorus. And very simply, I I just didn't feel there was enough there that I could sink my teeth into. And so I graciously declined to go in and even audition because I just didn't feel like there was enough there at that time.
0: Were you therefore surprised when maybe about three years later you heard again from Spike?
1: A, A little. I was a little surprised. And thank God. Um, the, yes. <laughs> that, he, that he, as you say, did not hold a grudge. Apparently Spike had seen me in, um, in Joe Turner on Broadway. And Joe Turner's come and gone, playing Harold Loomis in Joe Turner's come and gone, playing West Indian Archie in Malcolm X, and playing Paul in The Five Bloods. I don't know, we'll talk about that a little later. Yeah. They are yeah. three parts, Harold Loomis, West Indian Archie and Paul, they are three parts that I feel it was my destiny to play. Because those parts spoke to me profoundly. And so when, when Spike, when I got the call to come and audition for West Indian Archie, it Poor
0: was Martin, not necessarily
1: an immediate, oh, I got to play this part. But certainly right. I recognized it was a really good part. And there's a story there, but go. go I'll tell you, but you, go ahead.
0: Well, I, I, I definitely want to hear it. I just want to contextualize for our listeners who either it's been a few years or, or if they haven't seen it yet, this is Spike's kind of epic biopic, Malcolm X. You end up cast as West Indian Archie, who is this sort of bipolar, I don't know, uh, numbers guy who in the 40s became – a father figure to Malcolm X whose own father had been killed probably by the Klan. And you have said that, you know, even though it was a very small part and, and it, not a, you know, maybe approximately like 10 minutes of screen time, it was, you know, as you say, one of these just game changers for you and one that I know you're particularly proud of.
1: I am. I'm deeply proud of it. And if there are any young actors listening to this, it speaks very much to the um, axiom that there are no small parts. Now, the fact is there are small parts. There are, (laughs) right? There are, but, 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 but West Indian Archie was not a small part. And what I would say to any young actors, to say the obvious, it, it has everything to do with what you as the actor can infuse the part with. That makes it special. You know, I can think of a woman named Beatrice Strait in Network. Network. Yeah. You know what? Seven, five minutes of screen time, Academy Award. Yep. Um, Viola in Mm -hmm. Doubt, Viola Davis Mm -hmm. in Doubt, a few minutes of screen time. Again, infused it with this magnificent humanity, which gives the part depth and size having nothing to do with screen time. Uh, there probably there were probably quite a few more. I think I didn't see it. I think there was Judy Dench did something in
0: a Yeah, th- Shakespeare in Love, yeah.
1: I didn't see that film. But yeah, yeah, I think she was either nominated and or won and it was She it, won, yeah. again. So these so f- for any actors um, you know, it all comes down to what you can infuse the 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 parts with. Now, Western Indian Archie. What I was what I became aware of with Western Indian Archie, even though it was only a few minutes of screen time in context of the fact that Malcolm X is three hours long. I'm in the film for I don't know, maybe ten minutes, twelve minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But critically, with Western Indian Archie, there was a beginning, a middle, and an end so that West Indian Archie had a very complete journey. And it was that final scene that completed not only West Indian Archie's journey, but his journey vis-a-vis Malcolm. Right. His journey vis-a-vis the story as a whole. Mm-hmm. So by the time we, I was sitting in Brooklyn with the other actors in the read-through, I just felt a connection and connected to that part. I didn't know it was going to do for me what it did, but certainly as an actor, I felt very connected to that work. And I'm gonna give you the real short version. West Indian Archie almost didn't happen. Spike, I went and I auditioned. I auditioned in, in Los Angeles first. Uh, Spike was not there. I then did a second audition in New York. Um, this is pre-cell phones. I did the audition. I then had to get on a plane and fly to Los Angeles to do some reshoots for something else. When the plane landed in Los Angeles, there was a call from my agent at the time saying you've gotten the part, Um, but the money was not um, to my liking. So I said, yeah, I wanna do the part, but please get me some more money. We went back and forth um, for maybe a week or so, and um, there was no moving on the money. I then got a message saying from the producer that Spike wants to talk to you. I said, no, 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 I'm not talking to Spike. Let the, let, the, let the agents do their thing and get the money. Get me some more money. Second call, Spike really wants to talk to you. I'm not talking to Spike, man. No, you all do. <laughs> My wife said, talk to Spike. I'm not talking to Spike. A third time, um, Spike really wants to talk. I'm not talking to Spike. My wife, talk to Spike. I'm not talking a Spike. The upshot <laughs> was they pulled the offer. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing now. It was not funny. <laughs> no. <laughs> they pulled the offer. It was a Friday. I was, my wife and I were in Los Angeles. at Some swanky house in the Hollywood Hills, sitting by the pool. I get a call. The offer's been pulled. What do you mean the the offer has been put is off the table? They don't want you. My wife said when I came in to the room I was gray. <laughs> <laughs> my face was gray. She said, "What happened?" I said, "Spike pulled the offer." Um, my wife, of course, said, "I told you to talk to Spike." <laughs> Anyhow, a long story short, it was a Friday. We were flying back to... Uh, I was living in Jersey at the time. We were flying back to the East Coast from Los Angeles. I get John Killick on the phone. John Killick is Spike's producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, I need to talk to Spike. Yeah, we've been trying to talk to you for like a week and a half. Yeah, but I want to talk to him <laughs> now. <laughs> it's too late, man. We've offered to part to somebody else. Oh. Oh. Hey! Uh. <laughs> Get Spike on the phone. I want to talk to Spike. Okay, look, man, I'm trying to tell you. All right, so um, it was a Sunday. Uh, by that point, we had been in Philadelphia visiting family. Uh, my, fa- my father-in-law was very sick in the hospital. I remember in Philly, we had a prayer circle with myself and some, some friends. Please, 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 God. Sunday evening, we get back to uh, Jersey. Phone rings. Spike. Dude, what's up? Uh, hey, man. Look, man. Uh, uh, misunderstanding. He said, "No, man. It's, it's too late. Um, we've offered it to somebody else." So I, he said, "Look, the actor we've offered it to has the weekend to decide whether he wants the part or not. If he wants the part, the part is his. If he doesn't, the part is yours." When Spike told me the name of the actor who had been offered the part, I knew the part was mine. Not because the part had been offered to um, somebody who's not a good actor. He's a wonderful actor, somebody Mm -hmm. for whom I have huge respect. But I knew two things. When he told me the name of the actor, I knew that actor was doing another film that I had also Mm -hmm. auditioned for. But also, more importantly, I knew that the part of West Indian Archie was mine. And that's not an ego thing. It's just, ah, I'm connected to this part. This part is mine. He told me he would call me the following day, which was the Monday. Uh, He called me that, Spike called me that evening and said, you're in. (laughs) Um, To all actors out there, for the same money, that I had been rejecting.
0: <laughs> well, in the long term, it was a good investment. because hey, Amen.
1: it's not <laughs> always are. about the money.
0: <laughs> right. the, the best
1: move oh, I ever made great. in my life
0: to, to do that part. That's fantastic. Well, that obviously went well with uh, Malcolm X. And now the next time you hear from Spike, I believe, is for a even you know more sizable part in a movie that, for him... I mean, on paper, looks a lot like an autobiographical film, and that is Crooklyn. You wind up playing the patriarch of the family, uh, which is in Brooklyn in the early 70s, which shares an awful lot in common with Spike's family, not at least the fact that his father was a musician who was once doing very well, and then had some leaner years and stuff that you and, and the character or that your character and, and his father shared in common. And I just I guess I wonder, did you and he speak directly about the actual inspiration of this? Did you meet the father? You know, any of that stuff as far as Crooklyn went?
1: Yeah, Spike actually told me, and if ever you, you, you talk to Spike, Spike at the time told me I was not playing his father. He very specifically said that. And it confused me because clearly there were these parallels. And I think that, I just think that at the time, Spike was not ready to publicly embrace that. He has subsequently said, yeah, you were playing my father. Um, But at the time he said, no, you're not playing my father. But there were these parallels on the one hand, he said, you're not playing my father. But on the other hand, because of the parallels, the, the biographical, autobiographical parallels, I was given access to various family members who gave me lots of really, really, really rich information. And all of that was, you know, all of that became grist for the process of creating the part of, um,
0: of Woody, Woody Carmichael. Absolutely. And then, so Malcolm X was 92, Crooklyn's 94, and then in 95 is Clockers, where you are playing Rodney, the sort of leader of the Clockers, which the phrase basically refers to these young, low-level housing project drug dealers who are accountable to to Rodney. And um, I guess the interesting thing with that part, um, one of them, is that from one point of view, Rodney's a bad guy. He's putting, he's having people do bad things and he, they're, you know, you can look at, but he does not see him. I mean, he sees himself as giving these people a chance, right?
1: Absolutely. And that was what was um, really, really interesting to me about playing Rodney. Not, the the drugs, and this may sound really almost an, like an irresponsible thing to say, and I, I don't, I don't mean it certainly to sound irresponsible. The drugs were byproduct, no pun intended, of the larger connection between this man and these young people who was de facto a father figure to a lot of these kids. And the question became, the question is and became, why is a person like this a father figure? That's the tragedy of these kids, their lives, the lack of opportunity in their lives and the fact that because of all of that, a person like Rodney Little can become a father figure. Now, I have to tell you, I'm not, I am not, I was not, I do not judge Rodney Little. What I was trying to do was investigate the the, the human connection between Rodney and these young people. What helped me immeasurably in, in, in creating that part was the fact that when I met um, Richard Price, the writer of the book that the film is based on, uh, Richard informed me that Rodney was in fact based on a real person living in Jersey City. So I went over to Jersey City and I met this gentleman. Um, I met and hung out with for a number of weeks before we started filming and a really, really humorous, charming individual, um, great storyteller, loved to have a laugh and was also a very, very enterprising individual. This is a man who, when I met him, he swore to me that he was actually had stopped selling drugs. He was no longer in that life. I don't know if he was or not, but... In addition to that, he ran craps at the back of his store. He had a store. Um, he had his barber license. I think he had his real estate license. A very, very enterprising yeah, um, gentleman. Yeah. And so meeting him and hanging out with him and, and getting a sense of what he did and how he did it gave me a much broader sense of the human being. And that became the foundation for what I tried to, how I tried to create and present my Rodney in the film of Clockers. I need to go, I need to go back very quickly to West Indian Archie because you made this reference to bipolar and um, uh, West Indian Archie Archie is absolutely not bipolar. Some people, some audience members have looked at that last scene, the scene between myself and Malcolm, myself and Denzel And analyzed what they saw as some kind of a either drug induced or, or manic state that West Indian Archie was in. And all of that, respectfully, is inaccurate because in the script, West Indian Archie was described by, by Spike as near death. And during rehearsal, I said to Spike, what does that mean, man? What's wrong with him? And Spike said, I don't know, you created. So I decided um, that West Indian Archie had had a stroke. And that is the condition that is evident, that I hoped would be evident in that final scene. Some people who who have have watched that scene misinterpret, have misinterpreted the state that they see West Indian in, and some journalist years ago on the internet said he's manic depressive. He's a drug addict, um, bipolar. And that became, that became what subsequent journalists, unfortunately yes. yourself included have <laughs> kind of locked onto, but I, I just need to say, no, not a, not a manic depressive, the state. And if you look at the scene suffering from the, 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 um, in the process of trying to recover from a stroke. That was the condition.
0: Got it. Well, today we set the record straight. Hopefully, Hopefully. nobody uses that again. Uh, so, you know, there's these three films in four years with Spike and then none for 25. And so it I, I begs the question, did something happen?
1: Not that I'm aware of. I swear to God. Now, yeah. I really want that. That really is a question that Spike can answer. I was not aware of anything. He may have thought I was a pain in the ass. I'm, I'm, I'm really not <laughs> sure. But I certainly was not aware of anything that had happened, that had transpired. Over the years, you know, I would bump into Spike intermittently and we, we would always say, man, we got to do something. But it mm-hmm. would never happen. So you know, it, it would be interesting to, oh, oh, oh. It could be that Spike, Spike offered me get on the bus. He wanted me to do get on the bus, and I couldn't. I had committed to something else, and he may have been upset about that. I've actually mm. never asked him. Mm. Actually, there was another thing that happened, and I'm just, it's just coming to me now. So there was get on the bus that I was not able to do because I had committed to something else. And then there was a project that Spike was going to produce uh, with a with a young director, and we couldn't. And I was. They wanted me to do that, and I wanted to do it. But um, and I was going to act in it, and I was going to co-produce it. But we couldn't make the deal work. So I don't know if cumulatively those two disappointments, uh, from Spike's point of view. You know, represented him thinking that I was—I don't know—that somehow I had become maybe too big for my britches or something. I'm—I'm—I'm I'm not, I'm not sure.
0: Well, obviously, uh, he whatever it was, if it was anything, he's gotten past it because I saw recently he called you quote one of the great underrated actors working today close quote and and uh, wanted to work on the Five Bloods. But I was just curious because you know it is a, a one of these great collaborations that I'm glad to see it's back up and running. But, you know, coming off of those three and four years, obviously your profile in the industry was, you know, increased. And suddenly from being the guy who's in Spike Spike Lee's movies, you were now in a number of very high profile blockbusters with some some pretty sizable parts. We've got Get Shorty in ninety five, Ransom in ninety six. For Ron Howard and in '97, Danny Boyle's follow up to train spotting A Life Less Ordinary. These are several high profile projects, but from what I've read and, and things that you've said, I get the sense that it, it was maybe a bit frustrating that more opportunities did not materialize from those. Yeah. And what do you think that was about? <laughs>
1: started to say, what do you think it was about?
0: (laughs) Um, Well, I, I have my, I have my suspicions, but uh, it, it would not surprise me if your
1: suspicions are in concert with, you know, what, what I think, but as with everything in life, it's much more nuanced than, than that. I could say that, you know, had I been white, which is a really kind of a, Boring and reductive, even if true. Yeah. Boring and reductive kind of a thing to say. Um, I do think that um, there are other components. One of the components, I think, is that I made some strategic missteps in my career. Broadly speaking, I would say to you that one of the biggest missteps that I made as I started to interact more directly with the institution of Hollywood. One of the biggest missteps that I made was probably thinking that I
0: was important. (laughs) I think you're important.
1: No, no. There are two things, man. If you think you're important, the industry has ways very quickly of telling you and showing you that you're not, telling you, demonstrating to you that you're not quite as important as you think you may be. That's one thing. That's one element. The second element, the the second misperception that I had was that, and and it's kind of embarrassing to admit, I thought it was a meritocracy. <laughs> I thought it was a <laughs> please laugh. Please do. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was a meritocracy. You know that um, good, good work begat more good work begat more good work. Nah, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> um, and again, I have to stress that it's nuanced. But I think some of the behaviors that I demonstrated as a result of thinking that I was more important than I, in fact, was the fact that it is not a, the industry is not a meritocracy. There are various elements that comprise that make up success and people's willingness to want to work with you, right and its so it's not it's not just that one is a good actor no so there's so there's that the two two things: the fact that it is not a meritocracy, the fact that I was not <laughs> as important as maybe I thought. And and it was not an ego-driven thing. It was not an ego-driven thing. It was, well, I've done this work and I've demonstrated that I'm a good actor. But no, that's not enough. And then the other thing, and this is the other component or another component, and this is very, very critical, or at least was very critical in my journey in the industry. And that is that I was not as strategic or as diplomatic as I perhaps could have been in certain situations. I'll give you an example. In instances in which I was speaking with big, very important producers who had hired me on their films, and in instances in which the material, I felt the material needed improving. I was not wrong about that from a creative standpoint, But there's a way to to have that discussion. So in some instances, in in, in, in instances in which I thought I was, we were having a bona fide creative conversation, I was not sufficiently aware that these producers were frankly just thinking, I was a pain in the ass. And how (laughs) dare you have the temerity to tell me That this script that I'm paying you a lot of money to be involved with, how dare you tell me it's not good? I think that it comes down to something that probably all of our grandmothers or mothers told us, and that is you get more with honey than you do with bitters. That's
0: right.
1: (laughs) It's the way that you communicate. And I was not always sufficiently cognizant that I needed to communicate more diplomatically, less stridently. I needed to communicate in a way that could not be perceived as either ungrateful or big-headed, any of those things. Because to the extent that it is not a meritocracy, I needed to understand that whereas some other actors might be given some latitude, I was not going to be given that latitude because of who and what I am. And so cumulatively, I think those various components resulted in certain people saying this guy's an asshole. He's an asshole and he's difficult. And you know, and I know that when one is labeled with the D word, it can be the death of a career.
0: And but what we should emphasize is that through those through those years that we're talking about, you know, mid to late 90s into the early 2000s the work was always excellent which and you know maybe in things that pro, projects that were not necessarily as high profile let's just say the hbo tv movie for instance soul of the game you're playing satchel page really great. proud really proud of right? that film of that work or a smaller part which i know to come back there's no small no, parts no, of right? it, but just you know let's talk about people will remember mr rose the head of the oh. apple picking yeah. a uh, crew in the cider house rules where just to kind of maybe prod people's memory for a second, if I can just set the scene, Toby McGuire's the adopted son essentially of a, of a uh, orphanage director who also gives abortions at a time when that was particularly controversial. I guess it's always been, but, and then he decides for, to take an excursion and follow, This couple that he becomes friends with, Paul Rudd and Charlie Stern's characters, to Paul Rudd's character's family farm where there's apple cider being made by this apple picking crew, which is run by Mr. Rose, who, on the one hand, is a pretty cool character in the sense that he, you know, a guy pulls a knife on him and he gets him right back. And, you know, he reminds him they're in the apple business and all this this great monologue. Uh, On the other hand, he has impregnated his own daughter. So the fact that in relatively brief screen time there, you really uh, brought a lot to that character, I think, should be noted.
1: That's a really, that's a great example of uh, my doing work that I'm really proud of. Interestingly, I absolutely do not think of Mr. Rose as, as a smaller part, a very central and and the foundational part to that, to the unfolding of that story. But what I will tell you, what I will say is that, um, again, to all young actors, younger actors, even though my work was, I'm very proud of my work, off screen there were some dynamics between myself and the studio, this was Miramax, Mm -hmm. um, that probably did not enamor Harvey Weinstein to me. And it was very interesting. And again, I wasn't late to work. I wasn't doing drugs. It was nothing to do with that. It had to do with just small things that cumulatively can just make people say, oh, you know, life is too short, (laughs) you know, for this guy. I mean, what the fuck, you know? Um, And again, whereas maybe some other people would be given latitude, I was not going to be given a similar kind of latitude. And so consequently, when the film is released and one of the very first reviews says uh, Del Royal Lindo Oscar nomination, Mm -hmm. and when one of the other producers at Miramax, one of the other producers involved with the film, calls my agent at the time and says, this is his Oscar year. And my agent called me and said, guess who I just got a call? It wasn't Harvey, by the way, it was somebody else. So the work spoke, and I was really proud of the work, but I think that strategically, I I don't think, I know, that strategically, the studio made a decision that it was not going to be my year, it was going to be somebody else's year.
0: Right, right, which was... Weird because only only because, you know, there's a certain sense in in this awards side of the business, which I cover that, you know, it's somebody's turn or whatever. But the weird thing was Michael Caine had already won, I think, two Oscars. So that happened to be the guy who they emphasized from Cider House Rules. And or maybe that was number. No, I think he had already. Yeah, that may. I don't know. It was two or three, but he'd at least one one. Yeah, um, but the right.
1: decision that was made that it was his year. Now, I, yeah. I really want to stress, because I know this is not visual. I'm not recounting any of these stories with bitterness. I swear to yeah. God, I'm not. What I am attempting to do is to take a half a step back and look at how the industry functions and look at the relationship between the business aspect of the business and its relationship to the creative side that's of the exactly business. That's exactly what
0: I that's exactly what we try to do on this. So I really I appreciate your you know willingness to engage in that way and and I guess your your story is so interesting because you have done things that others have not done. So, you know, the year after that you're in a big hit movie gone in 60 seconds, the the detective chasing you know, these car thieves, it would appear to people watching that, you know, monitoring your career casually from the outside. Oh, this guy, it's got to be, he's got to be thrilled with how things are going. And yet my sense is that, you know, the fact that, okay, the, one of the most interesting things about you that I, I've been wondering is how just three years after that, in 2003, what was, what was on your mind when you decide to, under a pseudonym, I believe, enroll at San Francisco State University and pursue a degree at a time, you know, you're in your 50s, you're having a, what on paper looks like a vibrant career. And yet something about that to me suggests maybe you were thinking my best days are behind me. I better plan for something else.
1: Hmm. hmm. I wasn't thinking that my best days were behind me. I absolutely was not thinking that. I, I still, I felt and I still feel that I have a lot to offer as an actor, but I did feel that I needed to, there were a number of things. I did feel that I needed to broaden myself, you know, broaden my footprint, so to speak, as is said. Um, because on the heels of doing a film like Gone in 60 Seconds, that summer I, I did Gone in 60 seconds, and I went up to Vancouver, Canada, to do a film called Romeo Must Die. And I saw in that time period what producers will do. They will, they will move heaven and earth when they want you. So I am at a place in my career where I know what it is to be wanted by producers, and I know that they will move heaven and earth when they want you. And I also know what it is when they don't want you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right, right. Which right. is very
1: valuable. But going back to going in six, 60 Seconds, big, big film, as you rightly say, huge, Hollywood behemoth. But there were some things that happened off screen. And again, these are not incidents in which I was wrong, but they were incidents in which there was static between myself and, and, and the producers. And in those moments, one is aware, or in retrospect, one becomes aware of who has the power and who does not. And again, I, I really have to stress I'm saying this with not an ounce of bitterness. I'm saying it, I'm trying to be frankly pragmatic about my experience of how the industry has worked. And in that period, I worked with two very, very big, incredibly successful at the time um, producers, Joel Silver and Jerry Bruckheimer. Mm-hmm. And um, subsequent to working in those films, what led to my deciding to enroll at San Francisco State University was I'd been wanting, I'd been toying around with doing, enrolling in school for quite a few years. I can't tell you exactly what I had been offered subsequent to doing those films. I went to England to do a tiny film that, Actually, it was a really interesting, interesting experience. But the parts in that period, mid-2000s, were, I remember thinking they were parts that some of the things that I did were parts that a few years prior I would have said no. Mm-hmm. So I now find myself taking a half a step back and investing in myself in a different way. And it turns out that I remember when I graduated San Francisco State, I was I was I wasn't going to go to commencement. I wasn't going to walk. And my wife said, are you nuts? Your son has to see you do this. You know, my son, who is now 19 years old, but at the time was it was a was a you know, was a toddler. But he still needed to see me do that to walk and to get my degree. Of course, of course. And a few years later, when I graduated, when I got a master's from NYU, similarly, right? But to to, to answer the question that you posed, it had to do with me recognizing that things professionally for me were in a place where, you know what, I think I can, the work is not fantastic at this point. Therefore, I'm going to invest in this other aspect of, 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 of who I am.
0: I got the sense that it was something of a turning point. And the other thing, which maybe I'm reading too much into, but I think it's pretty interesting that very shortly after graduating, I believe for the first time ever, and it was in the theater, you directed something. And it's not just anything. Let me describe. So this was a a play called Medal of Honor Rag, right? Centered on... A black Vietnam vet who was in the service in 1971 and returns home afflicted with PTSD. Yeah. Which is exactly the description of what Paul, 1971, Vietnam, PTSD. Uh, you know, not that there's any grand meaning in the universe about that, but I just think that it's interesting. You were now directing and you had your first kind of experience in that world of, of his, that part of history.
1: You know, I could not have. I could not have anticipated, you know, the fortuitousness or the connection between that and where I am now. Uh, In fact, my directing, A Medal of Honor Rag, was, I'm not going to say it was more mundane because it wasn't, but it it really had nothing to, basically it was because I had worked with, I had worked with Heavy D, the late Heavy D in in Cider House Rules, and Heavy came to me and said, man, I, I really want you to direct me and this. Will you do this? And I thought, uh, no, no, Heavy, no. Just because, you know, Heavy was a, was a beginning actor, really. Um, but he, he kept on at me to, to, I really want you to, please, man, come direct this. And so I did. And it was phenomenal. It was a phenomenal experience, not without its issues, not without its problems, but I love directing. I love directing. And I relished that process And particularly with a young actor like Heavy, who was not trained, who, you know, who needed a certain kind of input in terms of coaxing a performance out of him. But it was very affirming for me that I that I that I was aware that I I, I was able to do that. So it was very, very affirming and very enriching for me. I want to just take a half a step back uh, because I talked about Romeo Must Die. And I will yeah. say that and I have no clue if Joel Silver will 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 uh, listen to this. Probably not. But Joel was an example of a communicative process in which I, I could have been and should have been much more diplomatic in terms of how I approached him with the material, because Romeo Mustard was a piece of material that needed a lot when it first came to me that needed a lot of work. And, you know, as I'm sitting here talking to you about being more diplomatic and being more strategic, that was an instance in which I could have been much more, uh, somewhat more diplomatic in terms of how I communicated. Because in the final analysis, you know, Joel wanted me in the film, moved heaven and earth between he and Jerry Bruckheimer to create space in the gone in 60 seconds schedule to allow me to go do it. One needs to take all of that into account, much more positively and graciously, when one is having a a, a conversation with a with a with a producer in which you want to say, "Look, um, can we look at these aspects of the script because they need improving?" So
0: interesting. Well, okay. So you know, in more recent years, you have done everything from voice a character a voice a rottweiler in up for pixar to play this uh to playing this lawyer who you know had the pandemic not interrupted our lives might have been on his way to being a presidential candidate in uh (laughs) (laughs) in the good fight on cbs all access it's uh you know where uh, critics i'm in the critics choice association which does the TV critics choice awards and the film and I know our guys loved your loved your work in that and people that you know that were really watching TV where they they watched everything thought you were great the problem is I don't know how many people know how to find CBS All Access which was I'm sure a bit of a frustration and I don't know if you'll hopefully there'll be a way where you can go back and wrap your I know you were planning to leave at the end of the fourth season but this was anyway all that to be all that saying at a certain point out of the blue after 25 years along comes spike lee again so how did that come about and uh or you know had you hear from him Would you, were you surprised and then if you can share what i understand was another case where you had to there was a little bit of back and forth before you agreed to play the, the part
1: yeah so um First of all, thank you, colleagues, for their support of me in the Good Fight. Because, no, really, genuinely, because there was always that um, that question of, well, how do we find CBS All Access? Where is it? How do we, you know, one of the one of the producers' mother on the Good Fight couldn't find it. Um, so, you know, whoever it was that was watching, I appreciate the support. Um, and you're right. Yes, I I was, I'm, I'm no longer on it. I, I had left and was going to do something else. But, um, Spike, I got a message from, um, my agent saying, Spike wants your number. Can, is it okay if we give him your number? And I said, Spike already has my number, but yeah, give him my number. Spike calls me and says, Hey man, you know, what's up? How you doing? Good, good. How you feel? How you been? How's the family? Because um, it
0: had been years, right?
1: It, yeah, well, yeah, it's been many years. But, you know, I've seen um, Spike, again, intermittently. I remember this was very interesting. I, I also did a, um, took some time out to get a master's from NYU. And during the time that I was at NYU, I ran into Spike down on Broadway, right? And we were talking. How you been, man? Good, good. We were just, we were catching up. And a gentleman walked past and said, oh, Spike Lee. Hey, man, love you. And then he looked at me and said, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, man, you're a really good actor, man. Uh, and Spike said, man, this is Delroy Lindo, man. <laughs> no, it was, and again, not, it wasn't an ego. It, it, was, it was the way that Spike said it that, was, that seemed to be full of appreciation, So even though we hadn't worked together, you know, uh, there was this appreciation. So here it is now. Spike calls me up and says, look here, man, I'm doing this film. I want to send you the script. And he said, "The the main characters in the film are Paul, David, Otis, Norm, and Eddie. Who does that remind you of? Paul, David, Otis, Eddie, and Norm. Oh, that's the temps. He said, <laughs> hey, hey, hey. that's Spike laugh that I can't do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I want you to that's play Paul. Great. I want you to play the character of <laughs> Paul. I said, "Bet, great. He sends me the script. And yes, to your point, I was really hesitant, you know, uh, for those who have not seen the film, that my character is a, um, not only a Trump supporter, but a MAGA hat-wearing Trump supporter. And that was, you know, just anathema to me. Anathema to everything that I think I stand for. So at our next conversation, after I'd read the script, I, I said, no, man, I, I I love the script. Can we talk about the MAGA piece, man? Um, <laughs> do, I, I really would rather not do that, bro. Can, can we make the character like a you know, like a, an arch conservative, like a heavy, heavy, heavy conserv- conservative without specifically being a Trumpite, a MAGA hat wearing Trumpite. So Spike said, okay, let me think about it, man. Let me think about it. So um, maybe three or four days later, I get a text from Spike. Hey man, I really need Paul to be a Trumpite. I, I need this. If you really don't want to do that, you can play, and he offered me another one of the other parts. You can play this other part. Interesting. So at that point, I know a couple of things. I know that a Spike really wants me in the film. He really wants us to work together, and that was very affirming. So I I um I call him up and I say, "Look here, man. Let give me. Can you give me a couple days? Let me read the script again and see how I feel." And um, I read it two more times. And in the in the in the two additional times that I read the, the the script, it was clear to me Paul was the part for me, just this magnificent part. That, and um, my lady also uh, said, read it and said, "No, you got to play the Paul. You got to play Paul." Um, and and at that point, in reading it, the two additional times, I realized not only is Paul a great part, but I was also able to create for myself a scenario that justified how I could become not only a Trumpite, but a, but a MAGA hat wearing Trumpite. So once I made that transition, not transition, once I was able to, <laughs> no pun intended, turn
0: the corner... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. We only have only one more week. Please, God. Yeah, please.
1: <laughs> Jesus, God, please help me. Jesus, God, help me. Um, once I was able to arrive at an understanding of how Paul could become this person, there was no other part for me but Paul. So I called him up and I said, man, I'm in. I want to play Paul. Of course, I got to play Paul. So that that was really it. That was it.
0: That's That's great. And I mean, there's so many interesting things about this movie one of them is that i don't know when the last time was that i i've been aware of seen or heard about even a a movie centered essentially on you know four guys who are probably all in their 60s i would say i would i believe who are all people of color who are there's never been anything like that about the the black experience of uh, in v- you know a Vietnam veteran, right? I mean, we've seen like for a for a brief few minutes in Apocalypse Now, you've got Lawrence Fishburne, you've got uh, I think him again in Last Flag Flying for a minute, but this is a whole new ball game. Um, so I guess just curious, what you made of the fact that that was gonna be kind of you know, I uh, just that that was what this would entail. Did you know these other guys? Uh, Did you, what did you make of the fact that, you know, I guess for budgetary reasons, he was going to have you play your younger selves, but in, in the end, it actually, people have remarked upon the fact that this was the perfect way to go about it. Right. But it was, it's funny how sometimes, you know, these happy accidents with movies. So anyway, just as you were processing what you were, what you were becoming part of.
1: Look, I don't want to come across as you know obsequious, but it's part of Spike 's genius. First of all, I had no I, I had no clue. I have learned subsequently that this was a budgetary partially it was a budgetary i didn't know that. All I can tell you is when I read it, it made for whatever reason it made complete sense that they would be there contemporary selves in those flashbacks never at any point when i read the script did i think oh that doesn't make sense it 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 made sense for whatever reason and i cannot deconstruct why it just did and in the playing of the scenes it made even more sense because we had spent all of this time revering norm and it made complete sense that we would be revisiting the past in context uh, of our present-day understanding of norm. Now, again, as I was reading the script, I was not deconstructing it like that. And I'm I'm not necessarily even sure that I was deconstructing it like that in the playing of the scenes. It's really only subsequently talking to the press um, that I have kind of assessed it in those kinds of terms. What I can say to you, reading it, it made organic sense and playing it, it made organic sense and it, and it has made, and it makes even more sense in context of Chadwick's passing.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: absolutely. So it is a, it is a, it's, I don't know. It's a, it's a a, a brilliant, unfortuitous, Dynamic on top of a brilliant and fortuitous dynamic that all in the final analysis is connected to the genius of Spike Lee having his finger on the pulse of the zeitgeist. And we could never obviously have foreseen George Floyd when, you know, a year and a half ago when we we're in, right. in, in Thailand. But there's something about the cat. There's something about about Spike's, his placement as a human being, as an African-American human being, and his relationship to the culture and the stories that he wants to tell as a result of all that he is and all that he believes, that in this instance has put him a half a step ahead. And that half a step or even a step ahead Now constitutes a direct connection to the zeitgeist, and it's not the first time he's done it.
0: No, you're absolutely. I mean, not even. It's the second time in in three years. I mean, Black Klansman also, you know, was in that sense captured the. You know, he didn't know that. uh, I think the Charlottesville post the footage at the end was added after that was. That's right. So it's you're absolutely right, and it's very interesting. And I got
1: to say something, yeah. and uh, because it's, it's always tricky for me to to, to talk about Spike, um, to, to to describe some of these aspects of of working with him, what his work represents, who he is. It's it's very it's tricky for me to talk about that, and without because somebody many many years ago described me as obsequious. When, when I was, I did something with Spike, I produced this documentary and the, and the guy said the obsequious, and I've been called a lot of things, man, obsequious, That's <laughs> um, but, but, but it's this extraordinary thing. It's this, it's, it's this extraordinary, um, um, phenomenon dynamic that and when it works, as I believe it works, you know, do the right thing. Um, yeah. Malcolm X. School Days. I mean, I, I didn't necessarily appreciate School Days fully when it first came out. When I, when I was preparing to do the documentary with Spike, and I went back and looked at School Days again, I said, "Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah." And now Five Bloods. I mean, I, it kind of, it kind of sort of takes your breath away, man.
0: Absolutely, that's a career unlike any any other. Jesus um, God. And, but but you know what? So he brought his a game for this, but so did you. I mean, let's talk about how I, I've read the extent of your prep for this, and I hope you'll share that. But also, you know, you may disagree with this, but I, having tried my best to watch and study as much of your work as possible, I don't know that you've ever had a a, a better four minutes on screen than the monologue that you deliver in this film. So just if you can talk about what you did in terms of reading and watching and speaking to people to get ready before you ever showed up on set, and then to, to, to have a moment like that and crush it, that doesn't happen by accident either.
1: First and foremost, I'm going to tip my hat to all the vets who, who took time out to speak with me most of whom I never met. I never met any of them. I talked to them on the phone and they shared their experiences. Now, they did not necessarily, they did not speak to me about PTSD per se, but they did speak with me about their experiences in Nam. And then I had a one major, a retired major, a lady who spoke to me about her experiences in Afghanistan. But the first, so I, I got to tip my hat. Majorly to every single one of of those um, people who gave of themselves, shared with me. That's one thing. A major tipping of my hat goes to my two cousins, Ronnie and Ted, who they were the first two uh, people that I spoke with. Uh, And because we're family, you know, they came up, I was on the East Coast and they came up and they just sat with me And told me about their about their experiences in Nam. And they were the most those two, A, because we're family, and so we had access, we had a certain access to each other, not only physical, geographical, but emotional access to each other. And they just they just gave it up. And um that formed one of the major building blocks of the foundation. Then the books that I read, the films that I looked at. All of those things created the foundation. And as you, to your point, all of this transpired before an inch of film was shot. And what it did, I just felt prepared. I I did not know it would, that the work would create the kind of response that it has created, but in terms of actor, Negotiating the material and negotiating the process. I felt that I had done as much as I could so that when I did step into that realm, when we started filming, I felt that I had, I had given myself the latitude of preparation. Right. And then Spike provided space, the creative space to work and create and B, and my fellow Bloods, we all together came into that environment and did what we did together. With regard to the monologue, he said, he, he told me, you'll be, spe- you'll be saying this directly to the camera. Okay, I, I, I just, I had no idea that it would, I, I didn't know it would be a thing. <laughs> You know, I, I didn't know it would become a thing. <laughs> <laughs> he just said, you would be doing this directly to the, there were two monologues, You'd be doing it directly to the camera. Okay. Just, it was an extension of the work. Um, but the morning that we filmed that scene, the day's, the day's work, in the morning, we filmed that scene. In the afternoon, we filmed the scene between Chadwick and myself. Uh, at the, at the river when I first uh, meet Chadwick's character, Norm. And um, it was Chadwick's first day of work. And again, in retrospect, I would say that there was just, and this is to your question about how you you prepare, how I prepared. At that point, I don't know, we had been filming for a number of weeks and there was a groundedness that I felt. And I have to, let me just say this, One does not walk onto a set saying to oneself, oh, I feel grounded. No, but there was a, a connection to the work and to the process and to one's fellow workers that just was deeply embedded at that point. And I knew how I wanted to approach that monologue and spike once again gave me the space, the elbow room to jump in both feet. And he was right there with the camera and the crew and all of them just to capture it so we could make that work together.
0: Do you remember Jeff to do a few takes or did you get it? No, man, we did a
1: number of takes, but yes, we did a number of takes and it was wonderful because both in terms of the way that spike works and in, in terms of the elbow room that he was affording me, the space that he was affording me, each one was different. So it never became rote. It became richer and richer and ever more richer. And the the things that I added to the scene there were little things that I added just based on how I was feeling in the moment. He captured all of it. Now he didn't use all of it, but he captured all of it. And never once did he say, don't do that. He was embracing and he was taking all of it, all of it, all of it. And so when it's, when the work is unfolding like that, you just know it feels right. And again, one is not thinking this in the moment, but in retrospect, this is why one became an actor in the first damn place to do this uh, kind of work.
0: Oh, it's, I I can only imagine. And I, I wonder if you can explain, you know, you wrap this movie, it's a grueling shoot in the middle of, uh,
1: we were in Thailand uh, and Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, uh, so it was actually partly shot in Vietnam. Yeah. So then you, you come home expecting this movie to open in theaters and we get, get hit with a pandemic and yet probably way more people have seen it because it was available on streaming in the middle of a pandemic than ever would have seen it otherwise and immediately i'm sure the other thing that happens with with netflix something goes on there people are inst- they're all watching it immediately together there's the let's you know this is the thing that people are talking about right now we're going to watch it then we're going to tweet about it then we're going to you know so you've got the critical response the public response and it's overwhelmingly positive especially about your work to a degree i'm not sure in film there's ever been this much of a response not that there hasn't been good response for other stuff but this is off the charts and at the same time to remind folks this is in june maybe you know i i forget exactly how many weeks after george floyd's killing but in the middle of all the protests that are occurring across the country. And I just wonder how you processed all of this at, you know, some of the the best feedback you could possibly hope for and should feel very proud of the work and all that at a time when, you know, the issues of race and injustice and, and all the things that are explored in in. All of Spike's films, I think, to some degree, but especially Defy Bloods, you know, this is front and center in the society as well. So just how you process that moment. And uh, let me leave it there.
1: I'm not sure I am. The processing is ongoing. The processing is, is, is ever-present, ever-present and ongoing. And I am not necessarily sure that I can articulate I was speaking with my wife a few days ago, and I'm reading a book right now in support of some work that I'm currently doing. The book is called Uh, In Search of the Racial Frontier, African-Americans in the American West, 1528 to 1990. And I was telling um, my wife that in reading this book, I feel like, and we were on the phone so I couldn't, but I feel like somebody has their hands on the inside of my head, on either side of my head doing that.
0: Mm -hmm. Blowing the mind. Yeah.
1: Blowing my mind. To your question, to be here now as an African descended person, in context of being an African descended person in America right now, who is also a parent, who who is the parent of a 19 year old son. And Attempting to disseminate is not the word because maybe better people than I can disseminate this moment, but to have all of the stimuli coming at one and attempting to make sense of it is very much an ongoing process. Added to that, the gargantuan professional regard for me that is manifesting right now and to throw that into the mix, on the one hand, of course, one is, um, I don't have the words, one is, um, you know, and being aware of that grateful is, is just simply doesn't get it. It doesn't describe, I feel, you know, enriched. But I'll tell you something. In the final, 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 final analysis, I'm a parent. I'm a parent of a a 19-year-old son. And that takes precedent over everything, frankly, in context of what is happening in America right now. It's a mix. It's a mixed bag. You know, it, it, it really is. And at certain points, when I have a conversation like this, for instance, and certain incidents happen, and who I am as an actor is at the forefront. When the Breonna Taylor decision came down, I didn't find out about it until the day after, because I was working and I didn't turn the news on, and I found out that a day after it had happened, the first thing I thought was, I got to call my son, Jesus Christ, to find out how he's feeling, how he and his friends are feeling. So in that moment, uh, uh, my son and I were able to have a wonderful conversation um, with each other. Nothing else matters at that time, except my conversation with my son, and my relationship with my son. Um, so there are various, you know, I guess in trying to answer your question, there are various components of oneself that are at the forefront, depending on what's happening, <laughs> you know, in the final analysis, it's a mix. I cannot speak highly enough about how phenomenal this moment feels for me professionally, but at the same time, this moment and what it means professionally is part of all of these other pieces.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, and I would, I would just add that I'm sure adding to the inner tornado of all this would, would be the whole terrible sadness to do with Chadwick. I mean, at this moment in time, I don't know if you knew he had been, if you could sense that he had been sick. I had
1: no clue. No. None of us had, I had no clue that he was sick. Um, you know, again, a testament to his professionalism, a testament to his, who he was as a, as a human being, as a, as an organism, as an actor. My, um, <laughs> my reference for Chadwick was, he was just real cool with my son. A few days before he left Thailand, we all went out to dinner Um, my family, uh, my, my wife and my son happened to be visiting, uh, Chadwick, his lady, um, and and one of his colleagues. And we all just sat and we were just people. And and I know it may sound really kind of um, like a mundane thing to say, but not at all. No. And he was really cool with my son and, um, just down. He was just down. And, um, a, that's what I remember. Uh, And and we talked uh, about, you know, we texted um, and I said, man, we got to get together. And he said, yeah, man, if you come to L.A. or if I come, his lady is from uh, the Bay Area, which is where I live. If I come up there, we'll get together. Just they're the things that I cherish having just having to do with two human beings connecting nothing. to. Of course, the fact that we're both actors is is a component, but it's not the main component. the the main component is one human being to another, just trying to connect. And then the final analysis, that's what's important. That sounds very new agey, but. um
0: No, not at all. I I think that, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it does in some ways make the viewing experience of this movie all the more profound when we're talking about Norman and what he represents to these others and that he's frozen in time. And anyway, but I think we should end on an up note, which is to say that I just cannot thank you enough for being so kind and generous with your time today. It's been a lot of fun for me to go through your body of work, and I hope that you feel as good about it as you should, especially in this moment, and uh, just can't thank you enough.
1: God bless, man. Take care of yourself.
0: Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter.